Stuff Podcasts. Hi, I'm Adam Dudding and welcome to The Long Read from Stuff. If you're wondering why you're hearing from me instead of Michael Wright, don't worry, he'll be along very soon. It's just that this week's episode is a story that was written by Michael Wright. And though I guess he could have done the little introductory interview with himself, that might have been a bit weird. So yeah, I'm going to ask him about his story instead. Hi Michael. Hi Adam. So this story of yours is called The Hoarder's Treasure. And It's a story that's got everything, really. A mysterious mansion, a wealthy eccentric, a a lost treasure, a guest appearance from a very famous New Zealander, and an enormous number of clocks. So, so Michael, how did you come across this story? Uh, It goes back a few years. I first heard about it, I think it was 2017, that somebody had died in a big old house in Christchurch and left some pretty interesting things as part of their estate. And I didn't know much more than that to start with. And the first job was finding out who it was who had died and who might know anything about this estate. And that took a while to unpick. And once I did, kind of this whole world opened and there were two or three concurrent stories all sort of converging and happening at once. That became yeah, a much bigger story. So it's, um, it's taken a while. So yeah, there are several stories that kind of intertwine. But the way you've written it, it's also broken into these quite specific chapters why have you done it that way? Yeah, that will hopefully reveal itself once you uh, find out what the story is about. But like I said, it started with this one person who had died in Christchurch. That's where the story begins. But there are two other stories and two other main characters, one who you've hinted at, a a very famous New Zealander, and another local person uh, here in Christchurch. So the story kind of follows one, then the other, and then finally the third and hopefully it all makes sense it will make sense at the end but uh, all the stories merged and came together at the end into um, quite a nice tale in their own right. So I can tell we're both um, sort of stepping around to avoid spoilers here with famous New Zealanders and, and other unidentified characters so I really think we probably shouldn't talk any longer. I think it's time Mike for you to read the story. So this is The Hoarder's Treasure written and read by Michael Wright. Part 1. Philip Philip Wright died in bed on August the 2nd, 2015. A second-hand dealer found him, rang the cops. It was a small bedroom at the back of a small hut next to a grand old house, right on the bank of the Hethcote River in Christchurch. But the section was overgrown and the house was dilapidated. Wright had relocated to the hut years earlier, when part of a ceiling rotted through. Someone, probably one of the cops, called Trevor Swainson. Swainson was one of Wright's oldest friends. He'd been driving past the house one day in the 1980s and saw a sign, plants and shrubs for sale. He pulled in, bought some plants and kept coming back. He was impressed by Wright's passion for and vast knowledge of the history of the area. Wright bought Ferrymead House in 1972. Built in 1851, it was one of the oldest homes in Christchurch, on the original Bridal Path, which connected the new city to Littleton Harbour. Over the years, the building had been a post office, store and hotel. For a time in the 1860s, it was part of a small village 
that grew around the wharf on the riverbank. Settlers trekking over the port hills could cross the marshy Heathcote river mouth on a ferry that departed from the firm meadow on which the house was built. Ferry mead. Later, the property became a nursery and orchard, and Wright kept it up, selling plants to people like Trevor Swainson. But he became more reclusive in his later years, and the place got away on him. His immense general knowledge and desire to share it sometimes came across as didactic. If people pushed back, Wright would get annoyed. Eventually, he shut them out altogether. I don't want to see people. I don't want to talk to people, he told Swainson. If callers came looking for the owner, Wright would withdraw, say he was Bill, the gardener, and refer them to Swainson. He disliked the noise of the lawnmower and wouldn't let anyone use it. The grass around the house grew wild, tangling with the vines and creepers. So when he died in that bedroom, alone, a refugee from his own home, it seemed like a dismal coda. A solitary man in a solitary life who, just like his rundown house and gardens, had been overwhelmed by the circumstances. But Philip Wright's story had an epilogue. One final chapter made up of thousands of clocks, one more death, and a remarkable piece of New Zealand literary history. The job of picking through Philip Wright's life fell to Christchurch antique dealer Derek Blackler. Blackler was well known in the city. He had run antique and second-hand stores since the 1980s, and for years had an antiques roadshow-style column in the press newspaper. Readers would supply photos of their treasures and some details. Blackler gave an assessment and a value. Ferrymead House would prove the ultimate challenge. Philip Wright was, by all accounts, a hoarder. Fond of going to garage sales and buying up everything that hadn't sold. Every room in the house was crammed full. Toys, crockery, silverware, furniture, dolls, gramophones, phonographs, boxes and boxes of records, books, piles of newspapers, stereos, VCRs, VHS tapes, and boxes full of wristwatches and pocket watches. Wright liked trophies too. Cheap, brassy things, won in faraway glory by other people. Kiwi Bowling League, January to April 1981, read the inscription on one that protruded from the top of a box in the living room. League runner-up, Flyers, Roy Fatarangi. Then there were the clocks. Countless clocks squeezed onto every available horizontal and vertical surface. Carriage clocks, cuckoo clocks, torsion clocks, marble clocks, grandfather clocks, crappy little plastic clocks. Wright had been a clock repairer at one time. I've added a few as I've gone along, he told one visitor. He built a large concrete block shed on the property as a museum to exhibit his collection, but it quickly became full to bursting. In the face of all this, Blackler went to work. The main house was cold and dark, and the rooms inexplicably small for such a large building. Piled high with junk, 
they seemed smaller still. On top of everything else, the place was filthy. Nature and wildlife had started reclaiming what Wright had relinquished. Despite wearing a boiler suit and face mask as he worked, Blackler still developed a nasty rash. It was worth it, though, to find the treasure. Probably the best finds were the watches. There were some early Rolexes, quite valuable. All up, the watches fetched more than $80,000. Several of the gramophones went for reasonable money too, more than $1,000 each. Ten sterling silver teapots, Blackler thought, would be worth at least $6,000. There was plenty of scrap gold too, broken or leftover parts of jewellery from empty watch cases and the like. Tens of thousands of dollars worth all up. The clocks, though, were confounding. Even now, no one is quite sure how many there were, only that there were thousands. When Blackler and the workers he'd enlisted to help go through everything entered the clock museum, they saw at least a thousand in there alone, lining the walls. Some extremely valuable, many not at all. Wright liked to hide his valuable possessions among many decidedly non-valuable ones. Blacklet didn't waste time. Everything he deemed of little value was sent to Bell's auctions in Kaipoi to be sold. For months, the auction house was inundated with box after box of clocks from Wright's estate. Most people in the antique trade regarded it as junk. Where was the treasure then? When Blackler pulled back the plywood walls of the clock museum, he couldn't quite believe it. Behind the wall of a thousand clocks was another wall of a thousand clocks. Wright had so many clocks that when the shelves of the museum were full, he'd erected false walls built more shelves and filled those with clocks too. In some places, the walls and clocks went three layers deep. Here was even more treasure. Wright's tendency to bury it among junk meant many of his most valuable clocks were on the enclosed back shelves, where, alas, they'd succumbed to the damp. The backmost wall was a sea of sodden wood and corroded metal, all shrouded in a grey blanket of mould. Blackler recovered what he could and left the rest to eternity. About this time, Blackler's relationship with the beneficiaries of Wright's estate started to deteriorate. Trevor Swainson, Wright's friend, took a dim view of Blackler's somewhat haphazard approach to assessing and moving items out of the house for sale. Swainson organised for a shipping container to be placed on site so nothing would leave the property until it had been catalogued. At one point, he went so far as to change the locks on the container to ensure this would happen. Things were about to get even messier. Because Blackler was about to find the single most valuable item in Ferrymead House. The original typescript of Owls Do Cry. Perhaps the most acclaimed novel by perhaps New Zealand's most acclaimed novelist, Janet Frame. How on earth 
Did it get there? Hi, I'm Carol Hirschfeld, the head of video and audio at Stuff. If you're enjoying our Long Reads podcast, how about contributing to the Stuff Supporter Program? You can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it just once, or monthly, or annually. Direct support from people like you helps us produce the kind of journalism you're listening to right now. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. Part 2. Janet. Janet Frame was born in Dunedin in 1924 into a working-class family. Her childhood was marred by the drowning of two of her sisters in separate incidents and her brother's epilepsy. At school, she was studious and already captivated by literature. As an adult, growing anxieties led to a suicide attempt and saw her admitted to several psychiatric hospitals where she was diagnosed, wrongly, as schizophrenic and subjected to terrifying bouts of electroconvulsive therapy. In 1952, while a patient at Seacliff Hospital near Dunedin, she narrowly avoided a lobotomy after the hospital superintendent read in a newspaper that a book of her short stories had won a prestigious literary prize. In 1955, she met the author Frank Sargison while holidaying in Auckland. Sargison, long at the vanguard of New Zealand fiction, was among her most ardent admirers and took frame under his wing. She became, famously, writer-in-residence in the army hut in Sargison's garden at 14 Esmond Road, Takapuna. There, over the winter, she wrote her first novel. Pictures of great treasure in the midst of sadness and waste haunted me, she later wrote of it in her autobiography. I began to think, in fiction, of a childhood, home life, hospital life, using people known to me as the base for the main characters and inventing minor characters. The working title was Talk of Treasure. Frame's first book had been published by Caxton Press, a Christchurch-based printing company established in part by the poet Dennis Glover. Caxton had been a vital outlet for the nascent New Zealand literature scene since the 1930s, but by the 50s it was declining in concert with Glover's personal life. Racked by alcohol and a failing marriage, he left Caxton and went to work for Pegasus Press, a new player on the Christchurch publishing scene, started by his old Navy buddy, Albion Wright. So it was to Pegasus Press, not Caxton, that Frame chose to submit her latest work. Fiercely private, she'd refused to share any of it with Sargison, and there was a keen sense of anticipation when she wrote to Albion Wright in September 1955, telling him that she'd written a work of 65,000 words and hoped he would consider reading it. If it were up to standard, Frame wrote, maybe it could be published. Shall I send it to you? Wright replied that he would like that very much. After reading, he declared it an extraordinarily fine work. I would like to congratulate you in having written a long story of such sustained power and interest, he wrote to Frame. We would like to publish your novel, and I'm quite sure you will not regret having sent it to us. 
It was a work unlike almost any other written by a New Zealander to that point. That it will become a best-seller or even reasonably popular reading is perhaps too much to expect, Wright wrote to Frame. But we do believe that this will be an important book in New Zealand letters. Wright didn't love the title, though. He and Frame exchanged ideas, all variations on a theme. At its core, the novel explored the struggle between the inner self, where true treasure could be found, and the external self, concerned with the false treasures of money, possessions, and social status. It was Wright who eventually suggested Owls Do Cry, repurposing a phrase from Shakespeare's The Tempest that Frame quoted in the novel. Where the bee sucks, there suck I. In a cowslip's bell I lie. There I couch when owls do cry. The sanctuary under the petal of the cowslip represented the inner self. The world of the predatory crying owl was the external. Owls Do Cry was published in 1957. While not all the critics warmed to Frame's style, its brilliance was undeniable. The poet and historian W.H. Oliver wrote in The Listener that it was probably the best novel yet written by a New Zealander. The first run of more than 900 copies sold out. Pegasus printed a second edition of 2,000 copies in 1958. Frame, by now in London, was flattered but unmoved. In the cold, smoky light of the north, she wrote to write, my southern 300 pages or so are quite unbearable. She was almost alone in her distaste for her own work. Owls Do Cry was published in the United States in 1960 and later in Britain and Europe and enjoyed favourable international reviews. Pegasus Press went on to publish a host of Frame's works, including Faces in the Water and The Edge of the Alphabet, which, together with Owls Do Cry, formed a loose trilogy. It had already published work by Dennis Glover, Alistair Campbell and James K. Baxter, and, briefly, became the outlet of choice for the literary arm of The Group, a remarkable artistic set in Christchurch that included Colin McCann, Rita Angus, Niall Marsh and Douglas Lilburn. Albion Wright was at the heart of it. While not a noted artist or author himself, he was, according to frame biographer Michael King, a handsome and urbane man who cut a dashing figure in person and in correspondence. An ex-Navy man, Wright was a keen sailor and reportedly fond of taking his literary clients out on the waters around Banks Peninsula. Despite Pegasus Press somewhat eclipsing Caxton, he and Glover remained friends. In his memoir, Glover recalled reuniting with Wright after World War II, when both their ships were returning to Littleton Harbour. On learning Wright was nearby, Glover, in his excitement, stepped overboard and had to be fished out. Wright saw the whole episode and bided his time while Glover's vessel sailed towards his. As we went alongside, Glover wrote, Albion said, Gloves! stretched out his hand and stepped straight overboard. Albion Wright died in 1982, a pillar of the Christchurch arts and business circles. 
tributes were directed to the Royal New Zealand Navy Benevolent Fund. In a somewhat staid obituary, the press newspaper noted he was survived by his wife, Betty, daughter, Karen, and son, Philip. Four years later, the archives of Pegasus Press were gifted to the Canterbury Museum. A few items, though, were missing. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Part 3. Derek. Derek Blackler loved a good story. When he got the call to lend his expertise to the estate of a man who had died, leaving a house full of untold treasures, he was in. The property was in his favourite part of the city. Blackler's own shop, Portobello Antiques, was at the tannery complex in nearby Woolston. He liked the industrial southeast corner of Christchurch, with its history as the young city's lifeline. He imagined trains coming and going along the long-defunct Ferrymead Railway, the little punt carrying people and goods across the river. This was where Christchurch was born, and now he would get to look through the building at the heart of it all. As a boy growing up in Southland, young Derek was obsessed with collecting and selling antiques. He opened his first antique shop in Beckenham in Christchurch in the 1980s, then established Portobello Antiques in the central city. It relocated several times before being displaced, like so many others, by the devastating 2011 earthquake. Blackler bounced around the suburbs for a while before starting again at the tannery. Antiques were his life. His friend, Gavin East, was a frequent visitor to Blackler's various shops, always keen to see what new finds his friend had made. Once the Ferrymead house job started, it loomed large in conversation. It seemed to be something that really preoccupied Derek, East said. Every time I went in to see Derek, he always seemed to have some more news about Ferrymead. The feeling peaked with the discovery of the crown jewel of Philip Wright's estate, the original typescript for Owls Do Cry. It was probably one of the things he was most excited about in all the time I met him, East said. I just remember him telling me a lot about it and showing it to me in the shop in the tannery, going on about how significant it was. Blackler told East he'd found the typescript in a safe somewhere deep inside Ferrymead House. No one, except Blackler, knew its value, or that it was even there, which made the find all the more remarkable. If that account were true, he told a similarly alluring tale about the discovery of the clocks, that a faint ticking from behind the wall betrayed their hiding place. Derek said he went in with a sort of Sherlock Holmes mentality, East said. 
assessing the evidence and figuring out where Philip might have kept things. He was brilliant at telling good stories, and I think there were a few things about the estate that there's possibly more than one version of. Trevor Swainson, Philip Wright's friend, was one who disputed Blackler's version of events. For one, it wasn't the biggest surprise that a Janet Frame typescript was found at Ferrymead House. Anyone who knew Wright probably also knew he was the son of Albion Wright, who ran Pegasus Press, which published many of Frame's novels. And the hidden clocks had been in the wall for years. Many of them were ridden with mould, or, at the very least, had run flat. None of them would have made a sound. There was no doubting the value of the Janet Frame find, though. There was another typescript found with it, the edge of the alphabet, but that was a carbon copy. Owls was the top copy, where typewriter struck paper, and included handwritten notes from Frame, Albion Wright, and possibly others. That was the notable one, the one that media and collectors would be interested in. Not that Blackler would confirm any of this. When I first spoke to him in 2017, he was very cagey. All he would say at that point, off the record, was that the typescript was for Owls Do Cry, and he was negotiating its sale. In early 2018, he said the Hocken Library in Dunedin, already the repository of a large frame archive, was interested. Then later, that the deal was all but complete. On November 30, he emailed me. They have paid, but it is still sitting here, waiting collection. Derek Blackler died in a suspected suicide on December 16, 2018. He was 63 years old. The press obituary described him as eccentric and witty. It was said Derek Blackler would rather spend time around interesting objects than boring people. Blackler was a chameleon. According to his daughter, Laura Blackler, he went through a number of stages. There was the shiny pants and hip-hop t-shirt stage, the beard stage, the Crayola stage, tight jeans and loud t-shirts, and finally the Where's Wally stage, so named for the round horn-rimmed glasses he wore, just like the elusive children's book character. It was almost as if he adopted a persona for the different circles he moved in. I've met people who saw themselves as close friends of Dad's, but didn't know he had children, Laura Blackler said. That wasn't surprising for me. I didn't realise how quirky he was until I got older. He could be wearing commis des garçons and having dinner with gallery owners and artists, and then in the morning be wearing a lava lover, eating sardines on toast and complaining about the price of gumboots at Kmart. I guess... That was him. All of that combined was the true Derek. Like Philip Wright before him, Derek Blackler left at least one puzzle behind. A few weeks before he died, he had received $17,250 from the University of Otago in exchange for the original typescript of the Janet Frame novel, Owls Do Cry. But he hadn't sent them the typescript. No one knew where it was. 
In the end, it fell to Laura Blackler to solve the final mystery. The Hocken Library, upon learning of her father's death a week before Christmas, didn't immediately know who to contact. It was February 2019 before they tracked her down through her lawyer. She replied that the typescript would probably be in the Christchurch offices of one of the law firms handling Philip Wright's estate. It wasn't there. Portobello Antiques, Blackler's shop, was the only other place it could really be, but it had been closed after his death and access was limited. Laura Blackler eventually talked her way in and was confronted with her father's legacy. Not unlike Fairymead House, the store was full to bursting with stuff. She walked in and sat down at her father's old writing desk. She knew and shared many of his mannerisms. If the typescript was here, she thought, it wouldn't be buried in some dark corner. It would be in the laziest, most convenient place where it was still safe. She found what she was looking for under the writing desk, wedged behind a printer. The typescript was bubble-wrapped and inside a cardboard box secured with duct tape. The box even had the Hocken Library's address written on it. Her father just hadn't posted it. The package was immediately sent to the Hocken, where it lives today. A neat volume typed on plain green paper, it offers a glimpse at the unglamorous graft behind literary beauty. The text is littered with deletions and corrected typographical errors. At one point, it almost disappears off the page, presumably the legacy of Frame's typewriter roller going rogue. Janet Frame negotiated the sale of her papers to the Hocken Library, part of the University of Otago, in the 1990s. As well as her typescripts and manuscripts, the archive includes letters, photos, books, receipts, travel bookings, even junk mail. Frame, a lifelong freelancer, kept everything. But there was no full typescript of Owls Do Cry. We're completists, Hocken curator Anna Blackman said. It's very significant because it was the first novel, and it's been republished many times in many different languages. It's definitely one of New Zealand's literary treasures, found in a box in an old house. A swathe of other Pegasus Press documents were recovered from Ferrymead House. Derek Blackler never offered those to the Hocken. He did approach Canterbury Museum, which holds a substantial Pegasus archive, and provided a detailed inventory of what he had. It included books from Caxton and Pegasus Presses, ephemera from the British Transantarctic Expedition of the 1950s, and a litany of literary treasures. There was the Edge of the Alphabet typescript, what appeared to be an unpublished poem by Dennis Glover, two recordings of Philip Wright interviewing Glover, and box after box of slides and photographs. University of Canterbury English professor Paul Miller, who Blackler consulted on the frame material, left through the collection on a visit to Portobello Antiques. It was stuffed into some drawers, Miller said, in a huge Scotch chest that sat near the front of the shop. There was a simply amazing range of material, he said, including Janet Frame material and printer's proofs, 
photos of early New Zealand literary figures, and manuscripts and correspondence from lesser-known writers than Frame. Canterbury Museum doesn't have the collection. The Edge of the Alphabet typescript was sold privately in 2019. But so far, there is no record the rest was sold or bestowed anywhere. Who knows what was in there, Miller said. There could well have been frame letters, letters from other writers. I'm desperately hoping they didn't get binned. One Sunday in November 2008, Michael Barton, a Briton on a working holiday visa, was sitting on a bench by the Heathcote River when a man approached him. The man was big, wore overalls, and had a few missing teeth. He introduced himself as Bill and offered Barton a cup of tea at his house. Barton accepted. Later, the man showed Barton around a museum on his property a small, chapel-like building shrouded in greenery. It was dedicated to the history of Christchurch, mostly the Ferrymead and Hethcote area, and largely consisted of printouts of photographs and articles stuck to the walls. Some were already peeling off. The man wiped the dust and dead flies off a visitor's book and asked Barton to sign it, then read aloud the entry. Barton thought the encounter strange, but at the man's request, agreed to return with his video camera. People who have been here are also Michael Barton's 20-minute documentary, The Lost Time Traveller, is now 13 years old, but already belongs to another age. William Wilson, the first mayor of Christchurch, Edward Gibbon, Wakefield. Barton follows William Philip Wright around Ferrymead House, the museum and surrounding gardens. Wright, dressed in a suit, plays tour guide, then sits for an interview, pondering subjects such as ultra-long life research and holographic technology. He makes coffee and plays Barton some records on a gramophone. In the film, the house is ominously full of clocks, gramophones, stereos and other paraphernalia. Wright's suit has a faulty zipper, and he wears dress shoes with no socks. It's certainly a bit of a mess, he says to the camera at one point, but that's the way it is. Barton, who now lives in Ireland, said Wright was clearly intelligent, but definitely a bit eccentric. Somebody who was a little bit socially awkward, Barton said. Not really used to communicating. In the nicest term, an oddball. Barton shot more than three hours of footage that day. At one point, he asks if Wright has any family. No, Wright says, there's just me at the moment. But small clues hint at something more. A framed cover of Janet Frame's Faces in the Water is visible on one wall. On another is a photo of Wright's father, Albion, Dennis Glover, and another man planting a tree. Glover is the only man in the picture that Wright identifies. Over and over again, Wright asks Barton, behind the camera, if he'd like to come and stay. You're the only person that's ever had the patience to even listen to me, Wright says. 
It's just a shame that I find someone who was really good to talk with, a good friend, and now they're away. Wright stares directly at the camera, a longing look. That's just life, he says. But I don't know. You might come back. I hope you do. That was The Hoarder's Treasure on the Long Read from Stuff, written, read and produced by Michael Wright. This episode was mixed by Sam Scannell and I'm Adam Dudding, Stuff's podcast director. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read Podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening.